What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean talks with the former president of Disney Studios turned vineyard owner Rich Frank Rich founded Frank Family Vineyards in 1992 His love of wine first stemmed from his extensive travel with his global career as the former president of Disney Studios. Prior to his tenure at Disney, Rich was president of the Paramount Television Group, president of Chris Craft Television, and one of the founders of the USA Network, where he also served on their board. Under Rich's leadership, television and movie properties such as Cheers, Entertainment Tonight, Golden Girls, Ellen, Dead Poets Society, Pretty Woman, Aladdin, and The Lion King achieved phenomenal success. Rich was the longest serving president of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. He is currently vice chairman and executive board member on the American Film Institute. So Rich, I don't think there's any better place to start than wine. When did you first know wine would forever be an intricate part of your life? Oh, wow. It's sort of, <laughs> I don't think it was a moment. Um, I think it was, um, it, well, it, it sort of came about when I was, um, you know, I was the typical teenager and college kid who drank beer and slowly started drinking sweet wines at some point in my life. But um, when I was working at Paramount and then at Disney, uh, because of my job, um, there were uh, many a time I would have to travel to Europe and see the heads of various networks or production companies. Um, and often they, we would go out to dinner and um, they started introducing me to really great wines at dinners. And um, I realized I was really enjoying them. And what I started doing at the time, because they didn't have phones that took pictures then, I would ask the Somme to give me the label. And when I'd get home, I'd try to buy a couple more bottles of that and taste one again quietly and put one in a cellar I was building. And I just slowly started really learning about wine because I had the opportunity to drink really good wines that were sort of presented to me by friends in a business situation. Yeah, I can tell you this at the time is when I realized that I like Bordeaux better than Burgundy's. And so sort of where I went here when in sort of starting out in Cabernet's instead of Pinot's. Where was your favorite place to travel and enjoy a great bottle of wine? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I'd say um, France and Italy. Um, I'd rather travel to Italy, but I'd rather drink wine in France. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's usually a good problem to have that predicament. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I clearly want to get much deeper into wine a little bit later in this talk, but I also want to rewind the clock. You're from Brooklyn originally, correct? That is absolutely true. I was from Brooklyn when Brooklyn wasn't cool. <laughs> when Brooklyn wasn't cool. So what was it like growing up in Brooklyn when it wasn't cool? I'm assuming you took some major life lessons away from that, didn't you? I did in, in a little ways. I was, look, I was young then. I was uh, born in Flatbush and my dad, when he came back from World War II, started a wholesale meatpacking plant in Williamsburg. Um, 
Uh, he passed away about a year and a half ago at 99, but I wish he still owned the building that he had then in Williamsburg. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know what it would be worth today. But um, look, as I grew up, um, I uh, sometimes went in and helped him do bookkeeping. Uh, um, I had breaks from college, et cetera. And those were the days he would literally say to me, if because I could come in at five in the morning, he let me come in late. He went in at three. But but he would say to me, if the light changes red, don't stop. Someone will pull you out of your car and kill you. And now it's the toniest place in New York. So shows you how things change over the years. I mean, I have to imagine you developed much of your work ethic from your dad then. I really did. I um I really got to live up there when when just a little backstory. When World War II broke out, I had just been born, and my dad enlisted in the uh, in the army, and um, uh, actually landed on Omaha Beach four days after D Day, and then drove trucks with oil for Patton's tanks, and lived through the Battle of the Bulge, and then came home to Brooklyn and started his business and made enough money for me to be the first one in our family to go to college. So you can imagine the real patriarch that he was um, in, in the family because that was the American dream. He lived it. He lived it every day and really, um, really was sound in ethics and morals and just developing his own company. And I sat at his knee and watched him. So I, yes, I, I took in, he was the one who sort of led me where I, where I needed to go. I mean, it's just incredible hearing you talk about your father. And I, I had no background previous to this call uh, about your father and the impact he had on you. So it's just incredible to hear. And you also mentioned when you were home on college breaks and you ended up going to the University of Illinois, what, what led you out there? Oh, that's again from my dad. Um, I uh, was looking at schools. At, I've learned it now, but I didn't know it then. At 18 years old, you know absolutely nothing about life. <laughs> I've only learned that because I watched it with my kids, and now I'm watching it with my grandchildren. But um, I was pretty nifty at doing mechanical drawings and drafting for some local companies and helping out. It was sort of a fun thing that I did. And... Um, uh, my dad had said to me, you can go any place you want to college that you can get into, but it can't be a place that you could come home for the weekend. <laughs> and of course I said, gee, I thought you loved me. And um, He said, I do. And I never had the opportunity because of the water to go to college. But I do know this. We live in New York and the world is not all Brooklyn and New York. And if you go away to college and you can't come home on a weekend, you'll go to a roommate's house or you'll go to a friend's uh, house and you'll see what their parents are like and their friends are like. And you'll find out that half of going to college is about learning what the rest of the world is like. Um, and he was so on the money. I still have great friends from back then. And I did the same thing with my kids when they went away to school and they're excited that they did the same thing. So um, 
it is just it's it's just learning experiences that you get as you move through it. In any case, to your question, I went to Illinois to study architecture, and um, quickly found out that every person in the school of architecture was better at doing that than I was. Um, and that was only one school of architecture. So I quickly realized that <laughs> I would have no possible way of earning a living. Um, it was also during the time at college that I have no ear for a language. So I, um, I barely got through the public schools and schools I went to in New York trying to learn basic Spanish. Um, so when I switched colleges at the university, I switched into engineering and because um, engineering didn't require a language at the time and found out that now, while I could keep up with people, it was terribly boring to me to sit by myself and do a lot of that. So I switched once again into uh, marketing and advertising and finally found a place that I was, uh, I felt really comfortable and thought I could move on in life through doing that. So it was just, I was lucky. I went to a great university that had many really strong colleges within it. Um, and that was a real benefit to me. I mean, once you graduated, this was the time of Mad Men, right? You ended up right back in New York. Well, how about, I think I lived the pilot episode of Mad <laughs> Men. Is that it, so? It was exactly the time I graduated. I graduated um, in uh, the winter semester of, of 65. I started, because of all my switching, I, it took me an extra half a semester to stay there. But um, I started in the media department at uh, BBDO Advertising Agency in New York, and it was exactly <laughs> Now, again, I don't know if you remember the pilot, but in the first episode, they're trying to get, I believe, the ANS account, which was next door to Macy's in New York, and they realized that they didn't have anybody who was Jewish in the meeting, so they brought up somebody from a different department <laughs> and tell you that that's how the advertising agencies worked in those days. Um, it was really interesting, but we never got to talk to the people who were the copywriters or the account supervisors. You had to spend a lot of time there before you got to that point. So I got my first job on at 385 Madison Avenue in New York, but I was on Madison Avenue making $95 a week and I was in the advertising business. So I had taken that next step. I mean, when you're on Madison Avenue, what did, what did you think you were gonna be doing the rest of your life? Did you think you were gonna stay right there and you were set? I was hoping to move up to one of those people like we saw on Mad Men. <laughs> um, I, um, it was great. And it was a lot of what you saw. I mean, uh, the head of our, our media department would take a number of us uh, who were working in the department out to lunch each day, not each day, but many days. And lunch was um, stopping in whatever the local pub was, having two drinks and then getting a bread hot dog and walking back to the office. <laughs> Couldn't say no because he was the boss. And by the way, he was paying. So at $95 a week, you were happy to get it. <laughs> but yes, I just figured I would do well there and I would be able to 
you know, move up in the organization and, uh, and do better. What happened was I was a, after being a media planner, I became a media buyer and bought advertising time on television stations and radio stations. And, um, the first thing I realized is that the people who were selling me the time had on much nicer suits than I had. <laughs> and when I pushed it a little bit, I realized that they were making a lot more money than I was making. <laughs> so um, I was about two years after that offered um, a position at one of the rep firms in New York. There's rep firms that represent groups of stations around the country and asked to come in and sell time for those stations. And I moved over to do that um, after a couple of years at uh, BBDO. So I became a time salesman. And um, that led me to um, eventually moving up in that business and getting with a group that started one a, a brand new rep firm and subsequently being hired by channel five in los angeles as the sales manager um, for uh, at the time gene autry station channel five in los angeles and um that's what moved me out to the west coast and did that naturally bring you on then to paramount well yes i did i i was at uh, the station for a few years, and then uh, Chris Craft Industries, which uh, owned not only the boat company and uh, it was a typical conglomerate at the time, but they owned a lot of television stations, and they had actually owned the rep firm I was working for when I left, and they asked me to come back and run their television group. So I ran. Uh, a television station for them in LA and one in Portland and one in Minneapolis. Um, so that's where I learned, um, about television management. And, um, from there, when I was doing a project one day, <laughs> we, the, those were the days I'm taking you way back on the history of television here. So I'm sorry if I'm boring you. Oh no, but, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, in those days, there were three networks and a lot of independent television stations. And independent television stations bought all the rerun shows and very rarely had anything original. And uh, the stations were starting to make a little more money. So they, um, we got together to see if we could all chip in and put together enough money to make a miniseries for the independent television stations. And we called that Operation Prime Time. And um, we had about 80 stations participating, so we had a nice budget. And uh, at the time we went out and we went to Universal, uh, who was the big, big, big TV producer at the time. And uh, Sid Scheinberg, who was the president of Universal, um, sort of said, well, great, we'll produce for you also. They were looking for different outlets. And uh, they started producing, over time, maybe three or four of these miniseries that we were doing. And um, as time went on, um, the group uh, started thinking that maybe we were vulnerable because we were all tied to one 
studio. And since I was the person living in Los Angeles, I should explore other places for us to, other studios that might possibly want to work with us. And um, the story does get someplace. Um, uh, At that point, uh, I went over to see the new president of Paramount, who was Michael Eisner. And he had just gotten there with Barry Diller uh, from ABC to take over Paramount. And um, I gave him the pitch that he should work with us. Uh, He called me at the end of the day and said, can we have lunch tomorrow? And I met him for lunch and he said, I hate your idea, but I want you to come over to Paramount and help us start a fourth network. (laughs) Wait, so what, what was this pitch like if he hated your idea, but just wanted to bring you on board? Well, because when you produce for independence, you lose money in the process. So <laughs> want to help us out. He was trying to figure out as Michael usually does, how do I make money at where I'm, where I am. And, uh, it was around the time that, uh, you know, people were talking about a fourth network. So we tried to start the Paramount television network, PTS, PTN at the time, um, which ended up being, um, the group of stations at the end ended up being really the start of the uh, UPN network uh, later on, but um, it didn't uh, it didn't work uh, because while we got rolling along, um, it was early '70s, and that's when the government took uh, cigarette advertising off of television and caused a giant depression uh, in advertising sales. So it was very difficult to make the financial numbers work. So we gave that up. And at the time, I then took over running all of television at Paramount. Uh, And um, we sort of stepped back from the network at that point, or at least I did. When you guys were in the moment there, did you realize you were kind of changing television forever? I actually did, um, and I'll tell you why, because we had, we since I came from the TV background of independence having nothing, and I also, from selling time, saw how many stations were, were always scrambling for shows. I thought that if we could do an original everyday show, um, it would be saleable because people would be interested in doing that. And that's when we created Entertainment Tonight. And Entertainment Tonight was the first daily show that was essentially a news show that was not was done by not a news network. And in fact, the cost of feeding it out every day over AT&T landlines was probably the most prohibitive cost we had. And um, stations were just starting to put in satellite dishes so they could um, avoid the long distance charges from AT&T at the time. And uh, actually part of the sell was to have the station put in a satellite dish so we could get the show to them each day. The other thing that was the biggest problem was 
Uh, the unions didn't recognize us as a news organization. They said we were still a studio. So instead of being able to go out with a camera person and a reporter, um, they wanted us to have someone running a microphone, someone doing makeup, someone you know doing hair, on and on and on. And obviously you couldn't afford that. So we had a lot of uh, long arguments with uh, the unions who finally came around and acknowledged that this was another type of news and really changed changed what was happening uh, then to studios and got us into first run production. And that show is still running today and is really the grandfather of the Access Hollywoods and all of those shows that are out there. But to do a show every morning talking about the entertainment industry really became a big deal. And what we found out, and I always believed that people were more interested in what someone was wearing or who they were dating or how many shrimp we were serving at the news than they were about who the writer of some episode was when they were watching a show. So, and it's proven true to this day, as you can see if you watched any of the Academy Awards last night. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new brain stick pack. Perfect before a workout or a study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you too as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. Yeah, no, I want to I want to get into that in a minute. I mean, under your leadership, I mean, you're responsible for some of the most well-known TV shows and movies of all time. I mean, Cheers, you mentioned Entertainment Tonight, Golden Girls, Dead Poet Society, Aladdin, The Lion King. Is there one that really stands out for you, a project you were involved with that you're most proud of? Such a good question, um, mainly because as I get older, even when I was younger, I f- sort of forget all the things that didn't work. Um, <laughs> well, I want to I want to learn about those failures in a minute as well. You'll find out that I don't remember very many of them. <laughs> um, what um, I would say that um, there were just so many. I mean, I was. <laughs> One failure that turned into a great success was um, when I was at Paramount, we were doing some specials to promote movies that were coming out and we would uh, shoot the premiere like on a Monday and uh, uh, we would talk about the movie and we'd have all the stars and they'd be at a party and 
we'd package it up and sell it to stations as a one-hour special. Um, and the one we did for in San Francisco, we shot it in San Francisco. It was for a movie back then, you probably remember, was called Foul Play. It's a, um, a very funny movie. And um, um, I remember at the end of the special, we had about five minutes time to put somebody in. And uh, I had Robin Williams there and I had Martin Mull there. Um, and I chose to give the last five minutes to Martin Mull to do a little routine. And it was later that year when we started um, trying to do a spinoff of Laverne and Shirley, which was called Mark and Mindy, that I, uh, I ran into Robin again and we knew he was the person. And uh, he always reminded me about that story. <laughs> um, but it worked out and we were, we were friends and he even did a guest shot on a silly little show I did a few years ago, Wilfred, just before he, uh, he passed away. I mean, you mentioned Robin, uh, I'm assuming I, I can only guess the number of, of stars and just tremendous talents you've worked with any, anyone besides Robin that you constantly think of, whether you're thinking of great humor or just tremendous talent. Yeah, there are those. I, I will tell you the, the other, the movie that I, I'm most proud of being associated with, which almost never got made, was um, Dead Poet Society. And um, um, it didn't happen for, for tons of reasons, which we don't have time to talk about now. But I remember that when we finally were able to get Robin to do, to do the part, um, everybody had turned us down. And, um, but when I first read the script, he was the only person I pictured in for that part hmm. and it became such an important movie. I mean, literally I had friends of mine say, I'm going to raise my children differently. Um, and I not in that business, I'm in the entertainment business where I was, you know, that was way too heavy. But point is he, he delivered a performance that, um, I think if it's on TV and you're turning around, you stop and you watch that movie anytime now. It's just, it's just an unbelievable film, but it also showed off Robin's unbelievable dramatic as well as comedic talents. It was just, it was just great. It was special. But yes, to get to work with Betty White, to get to work with Henry Winkler, I mean, Ted Dance, I, it's, it, it's, very, very, very lucky to uh, be in and around it all. I, I hate to mention the names because sort of like I want to thank so-and-so, but <laughs> I was um, unbelievably lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And um, I always say a moment in life can last, you know, I don't want to sound like the, uh, the Rolex watch commercial, but um, – I've always believed that a moment can last a minute and a moment can last 10 years. And I've had a number of great eight to 10 year moments in my life that have just been really special because of people uh, uh, that I've been able to be around. So it's been fantastic for me. How much do you think luck plays a part in it? You mentioned these eight to 10 year moments. 
I, I believe luck plays a big part in it. Mm-hmm. Had, um, had we not, uh, I mean, had, just going back to what I was saying, had they not canceled cigarettes on television, I may have pursued something else on, on a television network instead of going back and, and becoming president of Paramount Television where I was able to work with people like Gary Marshall on Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy or, or the people on Cheers and, 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 um, and with Thomas Harris on, on Golden Girls and Nurses and all of the shows that spun, spun off of that. So you don't know where you're going a lot of the time. Um, to me, it's, you know, it's the old Yogi Berra story, you know, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I, um, I, when something sounded interesting to me, I always moved in that direction and, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they were. I always believed that if the, if the job I was moving to didn't work, I could go back to a job similar to the one I had because I thought I was good at it at the time. So I was willing to take chances. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting to hear you. I mean, president of Paramount, and I mean, you could end your career there, and it would be one of the most illustrious careers. But then you transition to become the president of Disney Studios. When, when you find out that is actually going to take place, what, what is that moment like? It was aggravate. It was actually an <laughs> aggravating moment. Sorry to upset you on this. <laughs> yeah, I, again, it was something that happened, and it came out of no place. I was... When I was president of Paramount Television, uh, Michael Eisner was uh, uh, president of Paramount Studios and Barry Diller was chairman, uh, all names we now know. <laughs> um, I had, in fact, hired Jeffrey Katzenberg to come in and do programming for me when we were going to do that new network. And um, what happened was Paramount was owned by Gulf and Western, huge conglomerate everything from sugar to consolidated tobacco to cement, but they also owned Paramount. And Charlie Bluthorn was a character, to put it mildly. And um, he died unexpectedly um, down in Dominican Republic, which basically Gulf and Western owned at the time. And... um, what happened was it triggered a series of events that I got called up in. The events were um, that the board of Gulf and Western did not um, give a the bigger job to Barry Diller, um, who was chairman of Paramount. He didn't move up to Gulf and Western. So Barry left and went to Fox. And that triggered a, a contract fight. Because Eisner's contract, he said, I never read it, guaranteed him the chairman job if Barry wasn't there. Well, they didn't give him the job. So he left. A lot happens in between here. I'm shorthanding this. But he left to go to Disney, who was really suffering at the time, uh, and went over to Disney. And... uh, brought uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg over with him. And I, unfortunately, had about six months earlier signed a new five-year contract with Paramount. So while Michael asked me to go with him to Disney, I was stuck in a contract that I could not get out of. 
Um, and Diller had wanted me to go with him into Fox. And I was now sitting at Paramount with people I didn't even know. <laughs> All of my buddies had left. And um, it took about five months for, I, for them to finally let me out of my contract. Um, whereupon I went to Disney. So it wasn't a one, hey, would you like to <laughs> Do it. It was a bunch of aggravating moments while we waited and tried to manipulate how I could get out of it. So um, there's a longer story there, but um, basically it worked out. And so it was great. And I was able to get together with Michael and Jeffrey and just had another one of those great moments at, uh, at Disney. I mean, I've heard you mention multiple coworkers throughout our talk here. Is is there one person that just, without a doubt, over your career, you can say this person had a bigger impact on you than anyone else? Um, yes, it's not one. I mean, uh, there are those at various points who sort of steer your career um, because you get lucky. I mean, I'd be silly to say that Michael Eisner didn't have a big uh, influence on what I was doing. I would be silly to say that Herb Siegel, when he was running Chris Craft, didn't have a big effect on how I operated and what I learned and how I did that. Um, you know, Sid Scheinberg, when he first was at Universal and let me get started by doing these movies, was unbelievably influential uh, in my life because um, he became more than a friend, he became really a mentor. But to go back to the beginning of my story, my the biggest mentor I had was my father. Um, you know, a story he, I didn't tell you at the beginning, but I'll, it just made me think about it. Um, the story I told you at the beginning about him was um, we were putting on the back of a bottle because we were making a, a wine we call Patriarch in honor of my dad. And the story I told you at the beginning was being written by my wife, Leslie, on the back label because she was a news journalist for years and <clears throat> writes well better, way, much better than I do. And so, of course, she was questioning my dad on all of the things that I thought I was or I lived, but now it was going and writing on the back of a bottle, so he was changing many things. <laughs> it was, you know, I thought we were... The whole time I grew up, I thought we were Polish. Um, we came from a city called Vilnius. And when Leslie was putting it on the back label, he said, no, we're from Lithuania. <laughs> and she said, why did Rich grow up thinking he was Polish? And my dad said, well, Poland gets bigger and smaller depending on the year, and it was the city. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he was very particular. So she was writing on the back that he came back to Brooklyn and started his meatpacking company called Heidi's Meat Company. And um, my dad said, with my partner, Gus. And Leslie said to him, Dad, Gus has no family, and he's been dead for 30 years. No one knows, and I, we don't have a lot of space here. And he said to her, with my partner, Gus. Mm. I couldn't have done it without him. He let me the money. He was there when I wasn't. I was there when he was. It's with my partner, Gus. And um, 
that just there sort of summed up someone with morals and ethics that never had a shouted at anybody. It was just how he lived his life. And he instilled that in our whole family. And uh, so you talk about mentors. Yeah, somebody can teach you to, uh, to make something or produce something or read something, but you don't have the base. The rest of it doesn't fall into place very often, I find. Going into our, our talk here, I had no idea your father would be so prevalent in this, but I mean, obviously with all the icons you've worked with, but I'm so glad it does because it, it really shows the type of person and the character you are. But we would be remiss if we did not transition into wine. And obviously the listeners know I'm a huge wine guy and you probably are, are living my dream right now, owning a vineyard. So so tell me, is it all cracked up at, to be? Uh, for me and Leslie, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I never thought we'd get to where we are today. Um, I mean, we're one of the most distributed wines and fine restaurants in America. Um, I'm waiting for the new list to come out from wine and spirits next week, <laughs> but we're up with names that I only thought about when we first started. And this is going to be our 25th year this summer. And God knows how that happened. But um, when I first came up here, it was to buy some land and a house to go someplace on the weekends that I didn't have to spend a day traveling from Los Angeles um, and maybe come up for a few weeks in the summer. Uh, Napa was beautiful. It was close. I enjoyed wine. Uh, it was a total change from Los Angeles. And I bought a house, which I'm still in, uh, on our Winston Hill Vineyards in Rutherford. It's a 1930 Tudor home. We have fixed it up a few times, but still the same basic house. Um, and it had about eight acres of vines. And those were days people weren't buying other people's grapes because the business wasn't doing so well. And our grapes were being sold to concrete winery was putting it in their anthology, which was a really good wine. But I was just happy that someone was buying the grapes because I was paying someone to take care of them. <laughs> um, and um, that was great. And then a couple of years later, I got a call from a good friend, Kerner Rombauer, and I'm sure you know Rombauer Wines, um, who had become my friend up here just from having getting to know him when I visited here telling me that the local bank, <laughs> weird story also, the local bank was being bought by a national bank. And of course, they don't tell anybody till the day before because they don't want it to get out. And um, the local bank owned the mortgage on the old Cornell uh, Champagne House. It had gone into bankruptcy and the local bank took it over. Well, they couldn't complete the national merger until this bank got rid of <laughs> that mortgage. <laughs> and they were taking bids and they were going to sell it the next day by noon. <laughs> there were no financials around. And Kerner said to me, you should buy that winery. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I have a day job. You always tell me a day job. Um, and he said, um, well, I'm just down the block. 
So I can look it over and I can, I can get like an assistant winemaker to put in there. And it's really a small little project, but you should do it. And one day it may be valuable and we can become sort of partners for a while. And basically I need some money. So, <laughs> so I said, uh, what were they asking? I'm not going to give you the numbers, but he saw, he told me, and I figured, how do I keep a friend? And I, so I said, all right. <laughs> That's how you justify it? <laughs> I, said, I said, offer them half, right? <laughs> I figure, I figure it's going to go down, but at least I would have supported what he was saying. So he called me the next day at one o'clock and said, we own a winery. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, great. Now can I see the financials? <laughs> <laughs> bankrupt for some reason. Anyway, um, it ended up, which is now Frank Family Vineyards. So um, again, you want to talk about luck? That was uh, one of them. Um, we, um, I was going to make some wine to give to friends at Christmas time, a couple hundred cases, you know, and uh, uh, just sort of run it as a hobby. And um, People started coming by, and we've never advertised, and the word of mouth started spreading on that. And we, each year we made a little more wine, and uh, more cousins and friends started coming. And we've just grown. Then we, you know, said, "Well, we now make enough wine. Let's sell it in California, not just at the tasting room." And then we outgrew that, and now we're all through the United States, and the brand has just grown on really word of mouth and people coming here and having a good time. And of course the wine has to be really good, but they have a good time. They feel great. They walk out of here, maybe learning one or two things about wine that they didn't know before. Um, at the beginning it was good because they could say to a friend, look, I found a new wine or try this. Uh, and as it's gone on, we've just expanded the varietals we've done and, uh, just kept on insisting on quality every time, no matter what it took to uh, invest in it. You know, it's from the beginning, it's all French barrels. It's all the reserves are in brand new barrels. You know, despite what it costs, we weren't, I wasn't going to make wine in steel tanks and we weren't going to uh, pick by machine. We were hand picking and, and on and on just to make quality. Cause I always knew from the entertainment business that, People spot it when it's not quality, even if you don't. When you try to cut corners, it, you, you end up seeing it someplace. And I wasn't going to do it because we didn't have to. We were small and we were just going to grow. And we took all the money and put it back into the business. And uh, it grows now. I mean, we, I don't want to grow anymore. We're as big as we want, I want to be. But it's, it's just been a, an unbelievable growth driven just by word of mouth. I mean, I love your philosophy. It's our philosophy is we don't have customers, we have guests. And the idea is that our guests have a great time. And different people I've talked to who have been fortunate enough to be out to the vineyard, I mean, they rave about it, the experience they have. And another thing I love that you guys have done is the family element. I mean, you mentioned your wife, Leslie, earlier, and then your two sons are also a part of it as well, right? And I, I don't think anyone who's seen your social media or website uh, would miss Riley, your German shepherd. I mean, it's such a family atmosphere you guys have created. What went into that? Well, a couple of things. I, and I will say that the Disney background jumps in there. We, we always believed at Disney that hospitality was everything and... Um, um, you did have guests. So 
I brought that here. It was tough because everybody up here works on commission. And it was also tough because um, this is the least competitive place I've ever lived. Um, in the in the entertainment business, if you're in television, if your show does well, another show does not so well because you're opposite each other or the lead-in wasn't the same and on and on. And what's the top 10? And advertisers are putting money into the top shows. And it, it's all that. Uh, in the movie side of it, it was who won this weekend? Uh, what's the biggest grossing picture? You could see it last night just on the Academy Awards. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel made a joke that, you know, this weekend that Black Panther did more than all the other show movies that were up for awards. Why did he say that? Because it's naturally competitive. Um, and this morning, what's the big what's the big story? Lowest rated Academy Awards of all time. It's just everybody competing with each other up here. Everybody sells all their wine in Napa um, and a bug. If you get a disease in one vineyard, there's only a wire fence. It doesn't know where to stop. So you better tell your neighbor because if he gets one, it's coming to you. So everybody's very cooperative on on in the vineyards. Everybody sells all their wine. So my feeling was if you don't like mine, I'll send you to a friend of mine. And when somebody gets there that they don't like, they'll send them back over here. But at the end of the day, all the wine is sold. So why not be nice to everybody? I just my background anyway, but I love talking to people. As you can tell, I can't shut up here. You know, we, we always took the point and I had to say to the salespeople, it's okay if they don't buy, if they had a good time, every one of them is going to tell 10 friends and next weekend or next month, more people are going to come in when they come up to Napa. And, um, you know, that's how we built the business and we still run it that way today. And I insist that the people we hire in the tasting room are telling a story about who we are, a story about what our wines are, a story about the valley, not um, not leaning on the fact that, you know, this cab got a 93 rating and that one got a 94. I think this critic is crazy because are my wines better? We don't do any of that. It's. We just, we taste the wines. If somebody likes the wine, somebody says, is this a good wine? I say, you like it? They say, yes, it's a good wine. Because nobody's palate's my palate. And um, it just worked for us. And um, and then we try to give them a nice place to taste it. Because you can go taste wine any place. Maybe we'll do it in a, in a nice in a nice environment. Relative to the family, what I would say is, both my sons are very active in the entertainment business. So while while family does relate to them and they are definitely our ambassadors, um, I mean, Daryl, my younger son, is president of Amblin Steven Spielberg's company and produces The Americans and Bull. And um, he's in the middle of his career and he probably – would like to be up here, but he's loving what he's doing. And my other son, Paul, is uh, runs the programming uh, uh, division over at uh, a, a children's educational network called Baby First, and he's really happy. Um, so the family that's developed here has been a family of who works with us here. And we have 
people. Um, I'm thinking of one of the people here, named Marcos, who started working packing boxes for us when he got out of school each afternoon at, at, at St. Helena High. And he did that, and then eventually he wanted to go to college, and we structured his days around so he could work in the tasting room and go to college, which he then graduated and now made enough money that he's got his own home, and he's still with us, and now his younger sister's working for us in the in our uh, on our wine club, and it's a family attitude here. The people here have been here since we started. Um, the, there are a number of people in the production area that, uh, have been here from day one. And what happens is on Cinco de Mayo, their moms come with them and they make lunch for everybody outside. And it's just, it's that kind of an atmosphere here and everybody cares for everybody else. And it's great. And, and, and we don't have conflicts. It's, um, I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's, I, it's a dream. Well, I mean, that's under your leadership and it's such a refreshing philosophy. And I, I love hearing the stories about Marcos and, and some of your other employees. And Just one or two more questions I want to know. One of the things I love about wine is there are certain moments in time where you can remember opening a certain bottle. Is there a most memorable bottle of wine or moment that you've had around wine? Oh, boy. Um, I can't say that there's really one. I, you know, it's... Who's your favorite kid? You know, sort of. <laughs> sort of what I, I walked out when I saw Sophie's the movie. I couldn't sit there. You know, it's um, there are times. You know, at the beginning, like I said, I I had I was exposed to great wines when I was you know in England and France. Great Bordeaux that were just were just special. Which you know goes back to my other point. If if I did that when I got out of college. You know, if when you get out of college, you're ready to drink Sutter Home White Zinfandel because that's sort of the gateway drug off of beer into wine. But after a while, and first of all, you can afford it. And second, it's a different taste. But your palate quickly tells you after a couple of months, I got to move on to something else. <laughs> that's how it goes. If you give that same kid getting out, uh, you know, um, 79 Lafitte, he's going to spit it out. <laughs> but later on in life, he's going to love that 79 Lafitte. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a favorite. Um, I um, I just know I, I love big Cabernets, and, um, um, and we try to make our share of those. Um, and again, the proudest bottle I ever made and probably maybe the one I care the most about was that one I told you we made for my dad, the Patriarch, because it's a funny thing that happened that day. The, um, we had sent it in. Somebody had sent it in for a rating before we even had a label on it. And I was giving the wine. It was a 2012. It's a 100% Cabernet. And I was giving it to my dad with the whole family there at a on his 98th birthday in Brentwood. Um, and I, I brought into the restaurant. I knew them because they're not really allowed to serve wine without labels on it, but they let me because my dad was there. The wine to give to my dad and say, we made this wine and it's for honor of you. And we're going to read the label, but it wasn't even on. And that afternoon, Parker had come out just by coincidence with his ratings. 
and somebody had sent in a bottle with a scotch tape, you know, paper <laughs> on the label. It wasn't a real label. They just wrote Patriarch and sent it in. And he wrote, I don't know who makes this wine, but it's one of the greatest wines of the of this vintage. And he gave it 98 points on the night that we were giving it to my dad for his 98th birthday. Wow. That's a bottle I certainly remember. Um, just, again, moments, lucky, and, uh, you know, things just happen. So it's, uh, it's, it's good. I, um, I, uh, I, you can tell I have a great time. Look, being, I spend lots of time with my wife, who's in the next office, and we have a ball running this place. Um, we get to be involved in many charitable organizations up here because it's a very charitable community, whether it's the Napa Valley Vintners or Festival Napa Valley. I'm still involved with the American Film Institute as uh, one of the vice chairmen there, which is a great school that develops all these kids coming out, making all these shows and te- movies. Um, you know, we're living the dream now. <laughs> it's great. Wow. I mean, Rich, this has been absolutely incredible. I, I just love the stories and obviously a huge fan of your wine. I've I've been drinking only Frank family this entire week just to lead up to today. So I can't thank yeah. you enough for coming on. For people who want to know more about you, more about Frank family, uh, where should we direct them? I think if they just go to our uh, website, you'll you'll see it all. I have to give my wife credit for that one. It looks great. And I think what you'll see on that is instead of a table of contents, it opens with the day, and it starts at 5 a.m. And if you click on that, the first picture is the people working in the vineyards. Uh, Great shots of them, because that's our family also. And it takes you through the day of what happens each time. And it it features the people that are here, which is our family. And I think you'll get a good feeling of who we are if you just go to frankfamilyvineyards.com. Yeah, no, it's a a wonderful website. And Rich, once again, I can't thank you enough. And I I hope to enjoy a glass of wine with you sometime uh, out at the vineyard. But thanks again. Thank you. And hope anybody who wants to come visit, we're here. We're open to the public all the time. Come on over. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new Brain Stick Pack. Perfect before a workout or study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. 
Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. DSTLD, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Thanks got for listening got to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.